Welcome back, everyone. Today is Lecture 18. We're going to talk about transformation and oncogenesis. Let's start with transformation. It's a term that we have used a few times but never really explained. It's basically the, a very substantial change in the property of cells. And let's illustrate it with an experiment here. Here we take an am, a hamster embryo. We chop it up and digest it so that we have single cells. So we, we treat them with trypsin. You get single cells. And then you plate them onto plastic dishes and you grow the cells in culture. And on the left, we have a, a set of cells which we haven't treated in any way. And they grow and they form a monolayer. And, and that, if you look at that under the microscope, you can see it on the lower left. These are normal cells. Uh, but on the right, we've taken these cells and we say we've treated them with a mutagenic chemical. Among the cells growing, there will be foci of what we call transformed cells. And if you look at those under the microscope, they look very different. So that's what a transformed cell looks like. And we're going to spend some time exploring the properties of these transformed cells. In this case, we have induced them uh, by treatment with a chemical. You can do it with ultraviolet light. We're basically introducing mutations uh, into the genome of the cell in order to do that. The ability of cells to become transformed, another way to look at that is called cellular immortality. It has a lot to do with telomeres, telomerase, uh, and, and their activity. So the telomeres, of course, are the ends of the chromosomes. At the ends of chromosomes, there are, there are a number of proteins present called telomeric proteins. And the telomerase is an enzyme, telomerase reverse transcriptase, in fact. This is a cellular enzyme that uh, is there that helps to maintain the ends of the chromosomes. Because remember, the ends of our DNA has this end problem. You can't fill it in because you remove the RNA primer. You have a gap. And so the telomerase is an enzyme that solves that problem. It fills in the gap using a small RNA that's copied by reverse transcriptase. This telomerase is active in all cells during early embryonic development. However, somatic cells typically do not produce TERT. So when you're born, you have the ends of your chromosomes are long. And as you age, they get shorter. And in culture, they shorten with each cell division. When they're about 4 kb long, the cells will die. So that's why cells in culture will not survive forever. They're mortal. In fact, fibroblasts will only survive about 50 divisions because the, the ends of the chromosomes get too short. Uh, now, mouse telomeres are a bit longer, and so they can proliferate more generations. That increases the chance of sustaining spontaneous mutations that lead to immortality. And one of those would be a mutation that turns back on telomerase production, the enzyme. It makes perfect sense. There are other ways that mutations could make the cells immortal. And today we're going to see how virus infection can do that. Why I'm telling you this is because back to that cell culture experiment, those cells from the hamster that we played it out, if if they were mouse cells, they would divide for a certain amount of time. Most of them would die as their, the ends of their chromosomes shorten. But a few cells will survive, and they will go on, and they will be immortal cells. Uh, this period where the culture crashes and then recovers, that's called crisis. 
mouse cells can do this. What's happening here is that there are rare cells appearing with mutations like in telomerase genes or in other genes that make the cells mortal. If you do it with human cells, the cells die and, and never go through this crisis. They never become immortal because it's, their telomeres shorten before uh, these random mutations can occur. That's why in the previous slide I showed you mouse telomeres are longer. The fibroblasts can proliferate more generations, increasing the chance of spontaneous mutations. And so in the original experiment with hamster cells, what we did is we mutagenized the genome to increase the chance of cells arising that had a mutation that would make them immortal. So a transformed cell basically is immortal. It can live forever. And HeLa cell is an example of that. The cells obtained from Henrietta Lacks in 1950s. We'll actually talk about why they're immortal a bit today. And these are some of the properties of transformed cells in culture. They lose their anchorage dependence. They don't no longer have to stick onto a plastic or glass dish in order to grow. Uh, they lose their contact inhibition. Normal cells, when they touch each other, they stop growing. Transformed cells will pile up, and that's one of the reasons why they have the different appearance in the microscope. They will form colonies in, in semi-solid media. If you played out single cells, say an auger, the single cells, if they're normal cells, they'll die because they, they can't grow well on their own. They can't get the nutrients they need and they can't get them from their neighbors. But transformed cells have no problem because, as you'll see today, they have mutations and pathways that bypass those requirements. And they have decreased requirements for growth factors, which are present in serum. And so the transformed cells in the laboratory don't need as much serum as, as say, primary cells that you would produce, say, from a cheek scraping or a foreskin. So that's what transformation means. It means the cells have changed in a way. They are, those are stable, genetically mediated changes. And for the purpose of our discussion, those changes make the cells immortal. That's transformation. The other part of this lecture title, oncogenesis, is a different property entirely. Oncogenesis, of course, is the development of cancer. And a tumor is a swelling that can be caused by abnormal growth of tissue. It can be benign and remain restricted or malignant and spread to other sites. Cancers don't all have to be tumors. They can be cellular uh, cancers like leukemias. And cancer is a genetic disease. There are changes that occur in the genome that lead to it. About 8 million deaths a year in developed countries. Why develop? Because in those countries you live long enough to sustain many of the cancers. About a dozen mutations are thought to be what you need to make a cell turn into a cancerous cell. And these mutations affect a variety of signal transduction pathways that control cell proliferation, survival, cell fate, and the maintenance of uh, genome integrity, like, like pathways that correct errors in the genome. If those are mutated, then you will have rapidly accumulating mutations and the, and the cell will become a cancer cell. And these, in, these mutations have a variety of sources. You can inherit them from your parents. They can be caused by DNA damage. They can be caused by environmental carcinogens. They can be caused by viruses. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit about environmental carcinogens and also viruses today, of course. It's very important to understand that transformation and oncogenesis are distinct. Transformation is actually the first step in, in formation of a cancer. 
like the cells become transformed and they divide uncontrollably. That's the recipe for cancer. Uncontrollable cell division is a big problem. Why? Because at each division, the genome sustains mutations. DNA polymerases make mistakes. They have error correction for sure. And so their rate of making mistakes is very low, much lower than RNA viruses, but they still make mistakes. Every cell division introduces mutations into the genome. And if uh, those mutations are in the right genes, they will cause the cell to become transformed. And then as it becomes transformed and, and reproduces uncontrollably, then it may become a cancer if the num same, right number of mutations occur. So that's why most of our cells in our body don't reproduce continuously. In part, we don't need to, but also because if they did, they would eventually uh, become a cancer. And that's why one of the most common cancers is in the intestine, where the, the epithelium divides continuously and sloughs off. Now, studying the transformation of cells by viruses has given us understanding of what is needed to establish oncogenic potential. Our understanding of cancer today wouldn't be there if it were not for uh, our experiments with viruses and setting cells on the road to cancers. And that's what I'd like to tell you about today. So when you think about viruses and cancers, the virus is not doing it all. The final cancer is a property of cells dividing and mutating. The virus just makes them transform. So we have transformation on the left, normal cells and transformed cells, which have different properties. These may or may not be oncogenic, actually. They still need to sustain additional mutations to cause a tumor. Additional genetic changes are needed. So that's a very important thing to remember. And actually, most of what we're going to talk about today is transformation. This course is not about cancer at all. It's about viruses. Viruses transform cells. They can be associated with cancers, but they don't actually cause cancer. They cause transformation of cells. However, I have a list here of human cancer viruses. So you may be saying, what are you talking about? I think you understand viruses transform cells and then the cells take it the rest of the way. But the virus initiates the process. So we call these human cancer viruses. So it, among the human cancers, about 20% of them seem to have some virus as a contributing factor. And they can be RNA uh, or DNA viruses. Uh, for example, among the RNA viruses, HTLV1 or HIV1, those are two retroviruses. We're going to talk about retroviruses today that cause tumors, but not human cancers. Uh, and then hepatitis C virus associated with liver cancer. And then our DNA viruses, uh, including viruses we've already talked about as causing persistent infections, Epstein-Barr virus, Kaposi's sarcoma herpes virus, hepatitis B, human papilloma, and Merkel cell polyoma viruses. We're actually not going to talk about any of these viruses today. We're going to talk about retroviruses and uh, DNA viruses that do not infect humans because I want to tell you a story or a series of stories of how we un we learned all about how uh, cancer occurs by studying viral transformation of cells, and that was done initially with non-human viruses. So we're going to talk about virus-induced cancers. Induced is the key word here, right? It induces them. Every year I say in this course, transformation in oncogenesis is not required for the replication of any virus. And a 
number of years ago, I had to put an asterisk here because it turns out that there is one cancer of fish, this particular fish, the walleye dermal, it's a walleye, sorry. The virus that causes this cancer is called walleye dermal sarcoma virus. And there's a tumor caused by it. And as I'll tell you later, the tumor formation is absolutely essential for uh, virus reproduction for this particular disease. All the others, the cancer is an accident, completely an accident of the reproduction pathway of the virus. And I, that's what I hope to teach you today. The whole story or a whole understanding of cancer really starts in 1909. A doctor at the Rockefeller Institute, Peyton Rouse, and he's interested in cancer. Farmer brings him a chicken or an English hen, and it's got a tumor on it. And he's been trying to figure out what's causing these tumors. So this is 1909, right? We kind of know what viruses are. And he's thinking maybe these are caused by viruses. So he takes the tumor and he grinds it up. And uh, he, he filters it, remember, through a porcelain filter. And it was known already that if you do that, you can separate bacteria from filterable viruses, right? The viruses that go through the filter. Takes the filtrate and he injects it into another chicken. And the chicken develops a tumor. Amazing. 1909. So he concludes cancer can be caused by a virus. Nobody believed him for 50 years, basically. Well, a little bit less. He got the Nobel Prize in 1966. And I've already told you, this is the longest incubation period ever for a Nobel Prize. He discovered a virus called Rouse sarcoma virus. It's named after him. Not only did he get this Nobel Prize for it, so people finally came around to understanding. In fact, he left the field after a while. He got tired of people not belie believing him, and he went and did something else. But he came back to it as evidence began to accumulate that he was right. And he... he uh, saw himself uh, acknowledged as uh, the person to discover that virus, or a person that, who discovered that viruses can cause cancers. There were two other Nobel Prizes actually awarded to people who used his virus, and we'll talk about those today. Now, there's a wonderful book that uh, covers the history of, of uh, cancer, basically, The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee, which uh, won him a Nobel a Pulitzer Prize. And Mukherjee is a, is a colleague of mine. He's, a, he's an oncologist at Columbia. This is his best book by far. The others don't even come close. I'm, I don't mean to criticize them, but not even close. So I want to make a few quotes from this book uh, to, to set the scene for what we're going to talk about. By 1950s, cancer researchers had split into three feuding camps. The virologists led by Rouse claimed viruses caused cancer, although no such virus had been found in human studies. Epidemiologists argued that chemicals caused cancer, although they could not offer a mechanistic explanation. The third camp possessed weak circumstantial evidence that genes internal to the cell might cause cancer. You know, it turned out they were all right. All of this is right. And let, let me read the book. And if you haven't, read it. If you have, you know how good it is. This part, epidemiologist. You know, there, he, he goes through a lot of the early evidence. And one of them, chimney sweeps in the U.K., they, they used young boys because they could fit down the chimney and clean out the um, charcoal. 
And these kids developed testicular cancer many years later. An epidemiologist set out to study it, and he found that they were getting contaminated by the, the materials coating the, um, the chimneys, which had carcinogens in them. That's what, part of this idea that chemicals caused cancers. But you could only do so much, right? He made associations. So Howard Temin comes into the story in 1951. We've heard about Howard Temin before. He, uh, he goes to Caltech. He wants to study fruit, fruit flies. That's, that's Temin there, University of, of Wisconsin eventually. But he got tired of flies, decided to study Rouse sarcoma virus in Dilbeco's laboratory. We have also mentioned Dilbeco before. Dilbeco was a terrific scientist. You may remember he adapted the plaque assay for bacteriophages to animal viruses. He recognized how important it was to do quantitative virology. And he also understood the power of cell culture. Remember in the early 50s, that's when HeLa cells were made, the first continuous human cell line. And that he understood was gonna propel virology forward. So the two of them together was a brilliant matchup because until this point in time, Rouse sarcoma virus had only been shown to cause tumors in chickens. That's all they could do. They couldn't make cell cultures and do any experiments in cell cultures. But that's what Temin wanted to do. This is uh, Mukherjee's word. He wanted to create cancer in a Petri dish, which isn't technically correct because they're transformed cells. They're not cancers, but I get it. And he spent seven years working on this and he, and he did it in the seventh year. And what did he do? He took Rouse sarcoma virus and he was growing chicken cells in culture. So by then they had figured out how to do that. He infected these cells. And these are, again, the words of uh, Mukherjee, the infection of cells cited them to grow uncontrollably, forcing them to form tiny distorted heaps containing hundreds of cells that Temin called foci. So here are some foci, avian cells transformed by Rouse sarcoma virus. There's they have different morphologies. These are fusiform on the left. You can see the background of normal cells and sometimes they're round refractile, meaning the light doesn't go through them. It's almost like a plaque, you know, because yeah, this focus is made by one virus. You could do a focus-forming assay. In fact, for, for these viruses, that's what they do. They count foci. And this is what it looks like here. And see, piles of cells, they're transformed, piling up on top of each other. It's the property I've, I described to you before. But the first time it's being seen now after virus infection. The foci Temin reasoned represented cancer distilled into its essential elemental form, cells growing uncontrollably pathological mitosis. Yeah, I mean, he got it. He understood this was a precursor to cancer. And he's using Rouse sarcoma virus, which we know at this point is an RNA virus. And so Temin reasons this RNA virus is transforming the cells. It must be integrating and it must be making a DNA copy. That was his logic that led him to co-discover reverse transcriptase in Rouse sarcoma virus. And uh, David Baltimore, of course, uh, discovered it about the same time in a different re uh, retrovirus. And that was this, the second Nobel Prize for Rouse sarcoma virus. Its ability to transform cells in culture was the beginning of our understanding of what's going on. A few other early events in transformation of cells by viruses uh, in 1962, it was shown that you could take polyomavirus and infect, uh, he, these are baby hamster kidney cells. They change their shape. They keep growing. 1964, 
SV40 could infect mouse cells. They're, they're called 3T3 cells. Uh, and rare cells grew out as colonies. SV40, by the way, the virus, we've talked about it a lot, originally discovered as a contaminant of early preparations of polio virus. It was being grown to, to make vaccines, and uh, it's grown. it was grown in monkey kidney cells. You would take monkeys, harvest the kidneys, put them in culture, and grow the vaccine in it. And it turned out that the monkeys they use, you know, they were capturing them in the wild. They had SV40 in them. That's how we discovered that virus. And in fact, the early batches of both inactivated and, and attenuated polio vaccines had SV40 contaminants. But anyway, the point here is that now we have three different, these are two DNA viruses actually, and then we have Rouse sarcoma, leading to the same phenotype. Most of the infected cells die, but rare cells did not. And those rare cells are transformed. And it's, it's important to know that in these cases, the virus is, is uh, doing similar things as the retrovirus. So how can a virus infection transform a cell? How can it make it grow forever? So you have these three requirements. First, you have to either reduce or eliminate cytopathic effects, right? It can't kill the cell if it's going to live forever. That would be so obvious. We don't have to state it, but the infected cell can't die. So that's one requirement. Uh, secondly, the replication must be reduced or eliminated. The cells don't produce virus particles. That's an observation with many of these transformed cells. And, you know, virus particle production is, is related to cell killing in many, in many cases. And finally, the cell has to continue to divide. Otherwise, it wouldn't be immortal. I wonder if these th three things ring a bell. This, this bell here reminds me to ask you if, you if it rings a bell. And the answer should be yes. This is basically a persistent infection. It starts off with an acute infection. The, some of the cells don't die and they go on to be immortal. So transformed cells are basically persistently infected cells. Which of the following is not a property of transformed cells? Increased requirements for growth factors, immortality, loss of anchorage dependence, loss of contact inhibition, colony formation in semi-solid media, which is not a property of transformed cells. Most of you got the right answer, which is increased requirements for growth factors. It's the opposite of what a transformed cell has, decreased requirements for growth factors, right? All these others are properties of transformed cells. Immortality, loss of anchorage dependence, loss of contact and emission, and colony formation in semi-solid media. They're all properties. So I want to tell you now how studies with RNA viruses, specifically retroviruses and DNA viruses, as well as in vitro work on cancer biology all converged in the 60s and 70s to give us our present unified theory of growth control. We understand how the growth of cells is controlled because of this work I'm going to tell you on viruses. It's just a remarkable story. All right, so we're going to start with retroviruses. And the question is, how does Rouse sarcoma virus cause tumors in chickens? and transform cells in vitro. I've already told you it does these things, but we don't know how it does it yet. So let's take a look at that. This, For this, we need to know a little about chickens and retroviruses. And the virus you need to know about is called avian leukosis retrovirus, ALV. Every chicken in the world has this virus in it. No exception. Uh, this virus was identified in 1908, a year before Rouse, as causing leukemia 
in chickens. So it's technically the first virus associated with cancer, but back then people didn't think leukemia was a cancer. They, they thought cancers were only things, diseases that made tumors, you know, big solid tumors. But that's not correct, of course. So they, they discovered the first uh, virus associated with a cancer, avian leukosis retroviruses in chicken. And in fact, most chickens are infected with this virus within a few months of their hatching. Almost every chicken in the world can't get around it. Uh, and then leukemia or leukosis, another word for leukemia, it happens sporadically uh, in about 3% of birds over 14 weeks. So, uh, you know, not every bird lives longer than that. Uh, but those that do maybe uh, the ones that lay eggs and so forth, they can get, oh, you get about 3% of them getting leukemia. Uh, the rest, 90%, 97% of them, uh, after infection, they get a viremia and it's eventually cleared and they get immune to infection so they don't get leukemia. There's no more virus in them. It's just the ones that, the 3% or so that develop leukemia. All right, so what, is, what does this have to do with anything? By the way, this is, of course, our retrovirus. This is a retrovirus with a simple genome these avian leukosis, retroviruses, and rouse, as you will see, um, with reverse transcriptase and two pieces of RNA and so forth. Now, as birds get older, so they, they're not eaten by someone, they remain on the farm for whatever reason, they begin to develop other cancers as they get older. They get, for, for example, they get a variety of different tumors, but in particular, the ones we're interested in right now are connective tissue tumors. That's called a sarcoma or a solid tumor. That was the kind of tumor that the, the bird brought to Rouse had, a sarcoma. And that now you understand why it's called Rouse sarcoma virus. Rouse is his name. Sarcoma is the kind of tumor. And as Rouse showed, you can isolate viruses from these tumors. And you, if you inject them into chickens, they cause sarcomas. They don't cause leukosis. Rouse actually isolated one of these sarcoma viruses, Rouse sarcoma virus. As you will see in a few moments, most of these sarcoma-causing viruses are defective. They're missing a gene or more genes. They can't reproduce on their own. And that's what we call a defective virus. We have avian leukosis virus in 3% of the chicken. And then the ones that survive, who still have... The ones that are not immune, the, the leukemia survivors, they go on to develop solid tumors. So what's the relationship? And so this... Uh, was something that many people studied, and eventually, uh, in uh, 1980s, these two individuals got a Nobel Prize for it. This is Mike Bishop and Harold Varmus. Uh, they they both worked at uh, UCSF. Varmus went on to be the head of the NIH under the Clinton administration. He's now at Sloan Kettering, and uh, I, I have interviewed both of them in various ways, as you can see here. Uh, in particular, Varmus came to Columbia for TWIV 400. We had a nice chat about these early years and how he got to do this work. And basically, he found that the genomes from solid tumors, in fact, the chicken with Rouse sarcoma virus, these are recombinants. And the viral genome is a recombinant where a piece of the avian leukosis virus genome is replaced with a piece of host DNA, which they called an oncogene. So, Rouse sarcoma virus is actually ALV with a piece of its genome replaced with a piece of host DNA. Bishop and Varmus identified the piece of DNA in Rouse sarcoma virus, the oncogenus, as we call it, they called it V-SARC, 
or Sark for sarcoma. And they got the Nobel Prize for that work. So this is an important concept. All infected birds, after their leukemia, they come down with a variety of tumors, not just sarcomas, but other types as well. And Bishop and Varmus studied the sarcoma, but other people studied other kinds of tumors. And these tumors all have retroviruses that are derived from ALV, but they have a, a variety of host genes that are substituted. Now, most of these viruses are defective because the addition of the oncogene has removed viral genes. But Rouse was lucky. Can you imagine? His virus was not defective. If it had all the viral genes plus an oncogene. Why do I harp on that? He could grow it up in cells. Well, not in cells, but in chickens. He could grow it without, if it were defective, he would have had a hard time growing it and he might not have picked it up for many years. So that's why I say Rouse was lucky. His, his isolate was not defective. And each of these viruses from different tumors had different host DNA, not SARC. It had something else, another kind of oncogene, a gold mine for molecular oncology, because now we can say, look at all these genes. If a virus picks them up, they can cause transformation and eventually a tumor, right? These chickens have tumors, but the virus is starting them on their way to having that tumor. So here are some of these genomes. So these are called transducing retroviruses. And you've, you know the, the phrase transducing bacteriophage, right? The bacteriophages that go into the genome of bacteria, and when they come back out, they pick up a little piece of bacterial DNA, and then they can deliver that to the next cell. That's a transducing bacteriophage. That was understood long before this. So these are called transducing retroviruses. They don't actually come out of the genome and, and bring a piece of host DNA with them. That's not the mechanism. But they do have a piece of host DNA in them. And here is, uh, here's the, the starting virus, avian leukosis virus. These are all avian transducing retroviruses. And beneath it are the various viruses that cause different tumors. Here's Rouse sarcoma virus. So you can see it's not defective. It has gag. This is a picture of the mRNA. It has gag, pole, envelope genes, and then SARC tacked onto the end. But every one of these other transforming retroviruses, which cause different kinds of tumors, myeloblastomas, myeloblastosis, myelocytoma, another sarcoma, erythroblastosis, reticuloendotheliosis, different kinds of tumors. They have different oncogenes, MIB, ETS, MIC, MIL, YES, ERB, REL, and they've all lost viral genes. That's what I mean by defective. And then, of course, the uh, the birds didn't get all the attention. People looked at mammalian transducing viruses uh, in mice and cats and non-human primates. So here, for example, a murine leukemia virus and then derivatives, which can quote, lead to tumor formation uh, here with different oncogenes picked up in them. Uh, so we have a, a number of mouse tumor retroviruses. And then we have a cat, two cat retroviruses, feline sarcoma viruses, simian sarcoma, et cetera. So in, in all cases, you could simply isolate viruses from these animals and they differ from their predecessor by the introduction of these oncogenes. And so let me just emphasize this idea of defective versus non-defective retroviruses. 
a defective virus, you, you need a helper. So if you want to grow up avian myeloblastosis virus BA1, it won't grow on its own. It, it doesn't have envelope. You need to co-infect with the parent ALV virus. And, and as I said, these are usually missing envelope uh, proteins, but they can miss uh, other proteins as well. And, and this occurs during oncogene capture. So let's talk about how that works. How do these viruses capture an oncogene? So remember, reverse transcription gives you a double-stranded DNA copy of the RNA genome. It integrates into host DNA. The integration is fairly random. If it occurs next to an oncogene, onc, that's a cellular gene, and obviously it's involved in growth control, right? Because that's the phenotype, uncontrolled growth. A number of things can happen, and there are two different scenarios shown here. Uh, let's go on the left here and see what we have. So we have integration next to an oncogene. In this case, the right-hand LTR has been deleted by recombination. You know, Genomes recombine all the time, and th this viral sequence is not needed for the host cell, so it gets deleted. And now what we have is transcription of not only the retroviral genome, but the oncogene. Promoter in the left-hand LTR just churns right through the viral genome, picks up the oncogene, and there we have it. And that gets incorporated into the virus particle and eventually will be, uh, when that virus uh, infects the next cell, it will integrate the oncogene into the host cell DNA. In this form, it's, it, the, the oncogene is produced continuously. In the cell, it's regulated because you don't want to grow all the time, right? And the virus is produced continuously, and that drives the cell to, to dividing all the time. It makes the cell immortal, essentially. And on the right is another uh, way that you could get incorporation. The point is, the DNA doesn't actually excise itself. You should know that already, that retroviral, the provirus never excises. It's the mRNA that is made, which is then packaged. And this is how an oncogene would be picked up. There are other mechanisms as well, as we'll get to in a moment. Now, the study of uh, all of these transforming, transducing retroviruses led to the discovery of what we now call proto-oncogenes. And that's the name for the, to the gene when it's in the cell. And it's not really a good name because, as you'll see, the function is not to cause cancer. The function is to control cell division. But they were discovered, you know, in, in the light of, of a tumor of chicken. So the name is stuck. So in the cell, there are proto-oncogenes, which means they're not tumorigenic. Uh, they're over 60. They're in every cell. They control cell growth. They're highly regulated. The normal cellular genes have a C in front of them, right? C, SARC, MYC, et cetera. And uh, when retroviruses pick them up, they're called, they have a V put in front of them, like VSARC. So VSARC tells you it's the viral version and C is the cellular. You may say, isn't it the same gene? Not always. Sometimes after incorporation into the virus, the, the oncogene sustains uh, additional mutations compared to the cellular version, and they contribute to transformation. But these proto-oncogenes function at G0. They control the decision to go into mitosis and proceed through the cell cycle. Remember, the cell cycle, about a 24-hour cycle, is highly controlled with G1 and G2 phases. S is DNA synthesis, and then this, the M is where the cells divide, right? And the proto-oncogenes are the red-green red, light, or the, the light that controls the movement through here. Uh, and they say, go or no go? And we'll see how that happens in a moment. I just wanted to show you where these are located uh, in the cell. So again, here are 
uh, some of the different oncogenes that were discovered uh, in different host uh, animals, non-human primates, cats, chickens, rodents. And on the right is where the oncogene is located in the cell and what it does. So, for example, uh, there is a cis oncogene identified in simian sarcoma virus, which is actually a growth factor. It's a gene encoding a soluble growth factor. Now, on the right here is the signal transduction pathway that leads to cell growth. It starts with a growth factor binding to a growth factor receptor. Receptor protein tyrosine kinases initiate a phosphorylation cascade. Eventually, the a transcription protein goes in the nucleus and turns on genes that are involved in growth control. The proteins at every step of the way here are basically oncogenes, proto-oncogenes. Because if you overproduce any of them, if you overproduce the growth factor, you make the cell divide. If you overproduce the transcription factor, the cell divides. And so you can see growth factors, receptor protein tyrosine kinases, hormone receptors, non-receptor kinases, G proteins, other kinases, transcriptional regulators, those are all picked up in these transducing retroviruses. This is just remarkable. This is why we understand this pathway, because of all these viruses where a different kind of proto-oncogene was picked up in each one. All right, so that's the pathway along which they function. And those proto-oncogenes tell the cell whether or not to divide. When this pathway is turned on, when there's a, basically when there's a growth factor in the medium, the cell will divide. If there's no growth factor, it's not going to divide. And so that's the red or green light here at, before mitosis. The cells will stop here if the conditions are not right. And if there are suitable growth factors in the medium, they will proceed through mitosis. Why is that? Well... You know, after you go through mitosis, now you have two cells and they have to get bigger again in order to divide again. And if there's no growth factors, they can't get bigger. So that's why you would stop there. The cell cycle is controlled by these proto-oncogenes that were revealed by stuttering, studying transforming retroviruses. We call these dominant oncogenes because you just put one of them and you put one gene in a cell and the cell will start dividing. You don't need to have both of them. Dominant oncogenes. So we, we have since understood that there are other ways that retroviruses can transform cells. There are three, actually. And we've talked about Rouse sarcoma virus here, which causes rapid what we call rapid tumor formation. It takes about two weeks after you inject the virus into a chicken to get a tumor. And that's one mechanism. It carries a, a dominant oncogene in its genome. And that protein is made immediately when the virus gets into a cell uh, and it starts the cell to dividing. SARC is a membrane-bound protein that's involved in the signaling pathway, makes cell divide. That's one mechanism. Then we have transformation, or I should say tumor formation with intermediate kinetics like months. And that's ALV, the parent of our Rouse sarcoma virus, avian leukosis virus. It takes months for the chickens to develop a leukemia. These viruses don't have an oncogene, right? I showed you a picture of their genome earlier. Gag, pole, envelope. No oncogene. How do they transform cells? By a mechanism we call cis activation. The provirus, right, the integrated genome turns on the expression of a nearby oncogene. So the virus doesn't have to pick it up. It can just integrate and turn it on. And finally, we have 
viruses that take years to cause tumors like HTLV, human T cell lymphotropic virus. They don't have an oncogene in them. They don't cause cisactivation of local oncogenes, but what they do, these genomes encode regulatory proteins that activate oncogenes by transactivation. So three mechanisms for transforming cells. We've talked mainly about Rouse Rapid, but I want you to know that there are two others that were subsequently just learned or understood by studying other retroviruses. And here is a diagram of how those three work again. So we have transducing retroviruses, right? They have picked up an oncogene. So the viral genome contains the oncogene. And so these are rapidly producing uh, transformed cells and tumors eventually. Uh, then we have cis-activating, where the LTR integrates next to a, a cellular oncogene and turns on its, its expression. So normally this oncogene is highly regulated. Put an LTR with a promoter, remember, right next to it, it turns it on uh, pretty much all the time. The cell starts dividing. It doesn't stop dividing. It accumulates enough mutations, about a dozen, boom, it becomes a cancer. So you see the viruses are pushing them on their way to becoming a cancer. And then we have transactivating retroviruses, which cause tumors slow, with slow kinetics. So here's the genome of uh, one of those. It has a, a transcriptional activator here, it's shown as X, which is basically a protein that's needed to activate the uh, promoter. Remember we talked about that a long time ago. Uh, proteins that positively activate the activity of uh, promoters. So that's one of them. It turns out that X will also activate the um, transcription of a cellular gene. Uh, in, in some cases, this need not be uh, an oncogene, but it can be something like IL-2, which is mitogenic for T cells. So this, this can turn on synthesis of IL-2 or the IL-2 receptor, makes the T cells divide. And as they divide continuously, eventually they sustain enough mutations so that they become a cancer cell. So the virus just starts them on their way. This cell does the rest. Someone asked, could I explain one more time the, the distinction between C and V onks? So C onc is the name of the gene from the in the cell that encodes the, the oncogene that's involved in growth control. And V is the, is the viral version. These are when retroviruses pick up the C onc and carry it in their genome. So in some cases, it's the same gene. So SARC can be the same. But in other cases, the VMIC has a few mutations that distinguish it from CMIC and maybe make it more active in driving cell division. So those genes are all involved in this, um, this pathway, which is regulation of cell growth via control of the cell cycle, via control of entry into mitosis specifically. As you can see, these retroviruses transform cells. It's really a mistake because their DNA has to integrate. It has to integrate in order for virus to reproduce. But sometimes it integrates next to an oncogene, and that's what leads to transformation and eventually cancer. So it is not the, the transformation and cancer formation is not needed for the replication of these retroviruses. However, the, so there's no obvious requirement for transformation or for oncogenesis in the reproduction of most retroviruses, with the exception of walleye dermal sarcoma virus. So what happens is the fish are infected when they spawn. 
uh, you know, the fish get together, the concentration of virus particles in the water is high. Newly infected fish are, are free of disease until the fall when skin tumors begin to form. The tumors have proviruses in them, of course. Um, these, these tumors get bigger and bigger throughout the winter. Um, and then uh, in the spring, the water temperature change probably triggers uh, increased uh, viral production. So these tumors now are full of virus. And um, these tumors fall off the fish in the spring. And the virus particles end up in the water in time uh, for the new spawning, the new fish to be born and be infected. So that's a clear example of a requirement for tumor formation. It helps spread the virus in the water to other fish, right? The tumor falls off, the cells break apart, they release virus, and the fish are actually fine after this falls off. So that's the only example I know of where the, the tumor formation is actually required for the virus to be able to infect another fish, right? Not reproduction per se. All right, next question. Uh, which of the following allows Rouse sarcoma virus to transform cells? Presence of the envelope gene, presence of a Paul gene, presence of a SARC gene, presence of LTRs, none of the above. Which allows it to transform cells? Only 74% of you got the right answer. Presence of a SARC gene, of course. LTRs don't help it to transform. This is a virus that picks up the oncogene, right, and puts it into the genome. If it were a, the intermediate, the retrovirus with intermediate tumor formation, that would be correct. But Rouse picks up the SARC gene for sure. All right, so let's look at the DNA tumor viruses. We talked about retroviruses or RNA tumor viruses, as they were called before they were changed to retrovirus. Now, DNA tumor virus. So here we have... Um, on the right, studies with polyomaviruses, mainly in adenoviruses, as we'll see. So this starts with papillomavirus discovery. Robert Richard Shope, his son was Robert. I confuse them often. Uh, Richard Shope, in 1933, found a, a, vi a DNA virus that causes warts or papillomas. So a papilloma is another name for a wart. In cottontail rabbits, you can see these in the wild. Here's one. These are warts. You may say, what, what's going on? What do you think is going on here? The cells are transformed. They keep dividing, right? Without any control. They fall off. These, these rabbits are okay. They, it doesn't hurt them. Uh, it makes them look a little angry. This guy looks kind of pissed off, I think. Um, but this is where the um, myth of a jackalope arose. If you look up jackalope, you will see it's something people say they see a cross between a jackrabbit and an antelope. There's no such thing. It's just these rabbits with papillomas. It was caused by a DNA virus, which is related to the viruses that cause papillomas in humans, human papillomaviruses. So that's the first DNA tumor virus uh, discovered. Then another one in 1953 by Ludwig Gross. And here's, here's a picture of uh, him. I, I love this because all the mouse cages are made of wood. Handmade by wood, of wood, which we don't have anymore. Of course, they're all plastic and metal. I just think these are quite charming. He was into mice, and he discovered a polyomavirus of mice that caused tumors under certain conditions. These viruses, the natural host of, of them is the mouse. And in fact, most mice have them, murine polyomaviruses, but they don't cause cancer in mice. Uh, but they will cause cancer... And in fact, tumors of many tissues, that's where the word polyoma means, many tumors, in other animals, like hamsters, 
and rats and rabbits. So he he discovered the virus, found it didn't cause tumors in rats, but it does cause tumors in other animals. And again, furthermore, among the polyoma viruses, SV40, which I already told you, was discovered by Bernice Eddy and Maurice Hilleman uh, as a contaminant of early poliovirus vaccines. Simian virus 40, it's a monkey virus. Doesn't cause tumors in monkeys, but it will cause tumors in a different species, hamsters. That was shown in 1962. And as I told you, many Americans were infected with SV40. And there were many lawsuits for many years claiming that this uh, caused their cancers of all different sorts, but not really proven in any uh, way as far as I can tell. And it shouldn't because these are species specific. They don't cause tumors in the host of origin. Well, I guess humans are not the host of origin, so it's theoretically possible, but it wasn't the case. Anyway, SV40, the natural host is monkey, causes no tumors in monkeys, and doesn't transform monkey cells in culture, but will cause tumors in hamsters. So here's a summary of all this. So we have the species here, monkey, mouse, hamster, and rat, and then uh, infecting with either SV40 or mouse polyomavirus. So monkey cells are permissive to SV40. They're, they're, they're killed by infection. So no tumor formation there. Uh, the cells are non-permissive to mouse polyomavirus. The virus uh, does not reproduce its DNA. Uh, so that's what permissive means, that you get to DNA replication. Then the mouse cells are non-permissive to SV40. They're permissive to uh, mouse polyomas, so it just kills them. They don't get transformed. However, if you infect hamsters or rat, either cells or the animals, with either SV40 or mouse polyomavirus, the infection is semi-permissive. All right, so let me redefine. Permissive, of course, means that the interior milieu of the cell will support virus production, the production of infectious virus particles. Semi-permissive means you get uh, as far as, you don't get to DNA replication. You get as far, you get gene expression, but no DNA replication. And so hamster and rat cells are semi-permissive for SV40 and mouse polyoma. And in those conditions, in those combinations, you get tumors formed. If it's non-permissive, you're not getting tumors. If it's permissive, you're not getting tumors because the cells are dying. Only if you have semi-permissive, which means you get as far as DNA replication. So again, the, the transformation is rare, about one in 100,000 infected cells. So you take a cell, a culture of, say, hamster cells, you infect them with that SV40, one in 100,000 cells are rarely transformed. And so why is that? Why is it rare? And how does it relate to rare tumor formation in animals? Okay, we'll get to that. But first, we have to go through another family of transforming DNA viruses, uh, adenoviruses, which up until now, I've told you cause respiratory and GI and eye infections in people causing tumors, not in humans. These are human viruses. Many human serotypes of ad exist, but they do not cause cancers in humans. However, if you go into a different host in hamsters, some of them cause tumors. And uh, so 12 and 18 and 7 and 11. And like the transformation and cancer formation that we've just talked about for polyoma and alluded to for papillomaviruses, these are rare events. In other words, adeno causing tumors in hamsters, a rare event. A key finding was the presence of T antigens, both in tumors and in transformed cells. This is now why you learn why they're called T antigens. I've, we've talked about SV40 T antigen, right? It was first called T for tumor. 
because people were studying these virus-induced tumors and transformed cells. And it, the only thing that was always there was one protein called the T antigen. And in SV40, there's a large T, which we've talked about a lot, is its picture up there, right? It controls DNA replication, transcription, cell division. The most studied protein on Earth, uh, polyomaviruses also have T antigens, different sizes, but similar functions. Papillomaviruses, the T antigens are encoded by E6 and E7 genes. And the adenoviruses, the T antigens are the E1A and the E1B genes. Okay, these are the only viral proteins consistently found in tumors and in transformed cells. And these are all different proteins. The SV40 polyoma, papilloma, and adenovirus proteins are all different. And these are essential genes, of course. Uh, the encoding genes are required for replication. They activate transcription. They're needed for viral DNA synthesis. We've talked about these for SV40 and adenovirus in terms of these functions. And these, as I've said, are the only genes that are always retained in tumor cells or transformed cells. So you find T antigen proteins in tumors and transformed cells. The T antigen genes are the only viral genes that you can find in these tumor cells. Everything else is gone. And in fact, subsequently, people found that uh, T antigen alone can transform cultured cells. If you would like to become immortal, we can take a little bit of your of cells from your cheek with a swab. We can put them in culture. They'll grow. And then we can put a plasmid in them encoding T antigen, and that will immortalize those cells. And then you will have, you can have a cell line named after you. You know, HeLa cells was Henrietta Lacks. You can take uh, the first two letters of your first and last name. And if you remember on a previous exam, there was a cell line called V-I-R-A. V that was, you know, my supposed cell line. It's fictional, but that's why it's called V-I-R-A. Now you know. Let's put these all together. These three discoveries here now were the link to understanding how viruses transform cells and lead to cancer and how the cell cycles control. First of all, another huge discovery. When people said, what does T antigen of SV40 bind to? They found it binds a 53 kilodalton cell protein now known as P53. And you must have all heard of this protein. Almost every human cancer has some mutation in P53. So we'll find out what that does. Second, transcription of the adeno early genes. The E2 genes requires E2F. We've already talked about this. A cell transcription factor, E2, needed for the transcription of adenovirus early genes. And finally, E2F binds a cell protein called RB. These were three independent discoveries which all came together to make what's going on here clear. And all these proteins, P53, RB, E2F, turn out to be critical uh, regulators of the cell cycle. You've heard bits of this story already, and now, of course, we're going we're gonna to bring it to uh, its convergence. So we go back to the cell cycle, just to remind you. During mitosis, you know, all these uh, things are happening at the top here. We're not too concerned with that. Uh, but then we have after mitosis, we have now two cells, and each of them grows. The DNA reproduces, and then they can divide again. That's the, the cell cycle, and it's under control. We've already discussed how control to enter mitosis. The red part here is controlled by genes encoded that are picked up by transducing retroviruses. 
And that decision is, is determined by nutrient and concentration, particularly growth factors. Are there growth factors outside the cell that can be used uh, to, to promote growth? Or another way to look at it, is the outside world rich enough to replicate the cell? And that whole process that drives the cell through mitosis were the, is the pathway that were discovered uh, in the transducing retroviruses. But there's another point of control in the cell cycle, and that's down here, the second red arrow, right? So we have mitogenic signals at the top here that drive it through, but there's one more checkpoint, and that's determined by uh, RB phosphorylation. The protein that controls that is RB, which we have also encountered before. It's, it regulates this particular restriction point. In fact, it's involved in both uh, controls, as you'll see in a moment. Now, again, to remind you, we, we talked about this before, but RB, retinoblastoma protein, was identified in children with tumors, uh, retinal tumors of retinoblasts, uh, and they have lost both copies of the RB gene, those kids who developed those tumors. You have to lose both copies, and if you do, then this restriction point is gone and the cells keep dividing, and that's why you get the retinal tumors. And that's why the kids get the retinal tumors. So we call this a recessive oncogene. You need to delete both copies in order to get transformation of cells as opposed to the dominant oncogenes in the retroviruses. You only need to put one copy in. So how, how does this all work? Here on the left is um, the, the, the mitogenic pathway, starting with um, growth factors, say, binding to a growth factor receptor. We have a signaling pathway involving... A number, all of these proteins picked up by transducing retroviruses. There's the RAS oncogene, for example. Uh, and eventually uh, impinging in the cell on the cyclin pathway, uh, which drives the cell uh, into its uh, mitosis, the G1S transition. In order to have this happen, uh, the RB protein has to be uh, phosphorylated, which brings it off of the E2F proteins. First set of controls up here, and then the second by RB in the nucleus. And I've shown you this before, but let's reiterate it. RB is normally bound to E2F, and that binding prevents E2F from activating the promoters that control growth. And that's that would be in, involved in the G, G1S transition. When, e, when RB is phosphorylated, which will happen when growth conditions are right, comes off of E2F, and now E2F can activate genes involved in mitosis, including the cyclins, and genes involved in DNA synthesis. So phosphorylated IB, RB is inactive, allows growth control. Dephosphorylated RB restricts growth control. That's the nature of that restriction point. However, we know already that viruses need to have cells in S phase so they can replicate their DNA. And we've talked about this before. If a virus gets into a quiescent cell, it will cause RB to come off E2F. The phosphorylation is a normal cellular way to get RB off E2F. Viruses do it another way. They do it via T antigens. The T antigens are needed to kick uh, the cells into S phase. And how they do so is because the T antigens, large T, E1A of adenovirus, papillomavirus E7, they bind RB and they free up E2F. And now again, E2F without RB can turn on the genes that drive the cell through the remainder of the, uh, the, the cell cycle. 
So this was originally needed by these viruses, or still is, to get cells to divide. It's T antigen removing that second checkpoint down there at the bottom. But there's the, the, the entry into S, the DNA synthesis phase, and let me, let me go back and show you that on the cell cycle. So here's S. Entry into S is, is controlled by RB, either by phosphorylation or by being bound to T antigens. There's another uh, control of entry into S, and that's mediated by P53, the uh, other protein that's part of this story, which was initially found to bind T antigen. So P53 monitors either damaged DNA or unscheduled DNA synthesis. What does that mean? So damage caused by recombination or mutation, P53 senses it through a variety of sensor mechanisms that we don't have to, that we can't go into. But here, for example, uh, this protein is picking up a double-stranded DNA break and then it activates uh, P53, which will shut off the promoters that are needed for cell division because you don't want to duplicate damaged genetic information. So if P53 finds a break, it shuts off cell division until it's fixed. Unscheduled DNA synthesis, what is that? Well, like when a DNA virus gets into a cell, that's not scheduled. The virus is pushing it forward. So P53 doesn't particularly like that either. P53 is another obstacle to viruses, DNA viruses reproducing. And so viruses have to counter it. How do they do it? You guessed it, via the T antigens. Some of them cause degradation of P53. So P53 is in purple here. And here the, the papillomavirus T antigens are causing P53 to be ubiquitinated and degraded by the proteasome. A large T simply binds P53 and sequesters it, as does uh, the E1B protein of adenovirus. And so that prevents P53 from shutting down the cell cycle. And now the cells will divide. And for adenoviruses and polyoma and papillomaviruses, they need that so that the DNA synthetic apparatus of the cell is available to them. I think you can see how this is going to turn into transformation. But first, a, a, a quiz. T antigens are A, encoded by viral genes that are essential for replication, B, present in tumors and transformed cells, C, encoded by viral genes that have been incorporated into the cell genome, D, antagonists of cell cycle checkpoint proteins, or all of the above. Right, most of you got... All of the above, that's right. T antigens are all of these things. They are viral genes essential for replications. They're present in tumors and transformed cells. They're encoded by genes that have been incorporated. Remember, they're the only genes that are viral genes that are incorporated into this cell of, of uh, transformed cells and tumors. And they're cell cycle checkpoint antagonists. Why are all viral genes gone except for the T antigens? Why? What's the purpose of that? And why is transformation so rare? Transformation is rare because two low probability events are required. First, you have you can't express the lethal late genes. Late here on the right, encoding the capsid proteins, right? That happens by deletion. Sometimes virus goes in, the late genes get deleted. That's going to put that cell on the way to being transformed. Or if you infect semi-permissive cells, you never get, get to late gene expression, right? So either one. And I've told you about semi-permissive cells, right? When you put the virus in the wrong host, it's semi-permissive and the late genes are not expressed. So that's one. And secondly, T antigen has to be on all the time. 
and it has to be in every cell as it divides. And the best way to do that is to be integrated into the host DNA. And both of these events are quite rare. And that's why transformation is rare. And you need to understand that transformation and eventually tumor formation, which is downstream of transformation, right? These are abnormal. These are epigenetic processes. And, you know, we call these DNA tumor viruses. I put it in quotes because they're not in the right hosts. They are not tumor viruses. Yet, by studying them in the wrong hosts, we got to understand how tumor formation is initiated. They're not required for normal replication or transmission, except for walleye dermal sarcoma virus. They were, they were discovered by infecting the wrong host. Now, I don't want you to come away with the idea that this is always the case. Even in the natural host, rare events may occur leading to tumor genesis. Let's go back here. Sometimes you can be in the right host and simply have a deletion in the late genes, and that can lead to transformation. We used experimentally the wrong host, but it doesn't have to always be that way. In fact, uh, for human papillomaviruses, right? Human papillomaviruses cause tumors in humans. That's the right host for that virus. So you can have uh, deletion of the late genes and that can cause transformation. So transformation is an epiphenomena, which is a secondary effect that arises from, but does not causally influence a process. It doesn't influence reproduction of most of these tumor viruses. It happens because DNA tumor viruses have to get the cells dividing. So T antigens turn on the mitogenic uh, cycle. They inactivate RB to bypass that checkpoint, and they inactivate P53 to block apoptosis because if P53 detects damaged DNA or unscheduled DNA synthesis, it will cause the cells to divide. So DNA viruses block all these things because they need the cells dividing, but as a consequence, it can lead to transformation and eventually becoming cancer cells. And so all of this now explains HeLa cells, and in particular, Henrietta Lacks cervical cancer. Uh, the genome sequence of HeLa cells reveals integration of HPV 18 and chromosome 18. And if you do the sequence, it's not the full genome. It's E6 and E7. Those are the only genes that are intact. E6 binds RB and E7 degrades P53, as I've told you today. That's why she developed cervical cancer. She had an abnormal integration of uh, papillomavirus. Integration is absolutely not needed for, in, for papillomavirus reproduction, but it happened, and those two genes remained intact. Pretty low probability event, but that's all you need is to get the cells transformed, and eventually they accumulate enough mutations to make a cancer. And integration of DNA is, rare, is a rare event, even in infected individuals. We now understand the cell cycle and what controls it. Uh, we understand that transformation by these different kinds of viruses are the accidents of a unique reproduction cycle, re integration into host DNA of RNA tumor viruses, and the need to turn on the cell cycle for DNA tumor viruses. It's just so beautiful. It makes perfect sense. And we now understand the checkpoint here up at the top from studying uh, the, these transducing, transforming retroviruses, they have their dominant oncogenes as well as integration mechanisms as well. And then the uh, checkpoints down here 
including RB and P53, uh, revealed by studying DNA tumor viruses. And those are recessive oncogenes, of course. It's, it's just a gorgeous summation of the cell cycle control, really by studying these two different kinds of viruses. And the coolest part, in my view, is that it all began with a chicken. All right, next time we will talk about vaccines. <laughs> <laughs>